So in 2013, Britain's Royal Society of Chemistry did an experiment. And they calculated what it would cost to bring together all of the chemical elements in a human body. So if you're not science inclined, perhaps you didn't know that some of these chemicals are actually in our bodies, all right? So uh, they decided to figure out how much does it cost in order to put the chemicals of a human body together. So the Royal Society of Chemistry did these things, and this is coming from Bill Bryson's book, The Body. According to them, there are 59 elements that are needed to construct a human. Six of these are carbon, oxygen, hydrogen, nitrogen, calcium, and phosphorus, account for 99.1% of what makes us. And then we have smaller amounts of other things. We have some molybdenum, some manganese, tin, we have tin in us, copper, pretty interesting. We only have 20 atoms of cobalt and 30 atoms of chromium. The biggest component that any human has is that takes up 61% of available space is oxygen. Now the reason that we're not light and bouncy and the reason why we don't just like float around like a balloon is that the oxygen is mostly bound up with hydrogen. And what happens when you have oxygen and hydrogen come together? It makes water. Oh, you are so good. So it's a little ironic that the two lightest things, hydrogen and oxygen, when they come together make one of the heaviest things, water. But, you know, that's just, that's the, that's how chemistry works. It's, you know, crazy. So hydrogen and oxygen are two of the cheaper elements. They don't cost a lot. All of your oxygen is only going to come up to about $14. And your hydrogen is going to cost about $26. Your nitrogen is only about 2.6% of you, and it's only about 40 cents per body. But after that, it kind of gets expensive. You need 30 pounds of carbon, and that is going to cost you about $69,500, according to the Royal Society of Chemistry. And, the, and Bill Bryson makes the comment in his notes that they were only using the most purified forms because the Royal Society of Chemistry wouldn't make a human with cheap stuff. So then there's calcium and phosphorus and potassium, and those are needed in smaller amounts, and, but they would come together and set you back about $73,800. And most of the rest of it is even more expensive. So all the tin that you need only takes about six cents, and the zirconium and niobium are only going to cost you about three cents. But altogether, when you put all of the costs together, the Royal Society of Chemistry said the full cost of building any human being would be $151,578.46. Then you add in labor and sales tax, and of course, the costs increase. So you'd probably be lucky to get a human for much less than $300,000. Now, that said, in 2012, NOVA, which is the long-running science program on PBS, they did a very similar study. They also did anal equivalent analyses, and th they called it hunting the elements, and they came up with a very different number. According to their calculations, it only was going to cost about $168 for the fundamental components within the human body. This just shows that nobody really knows what they're talking about, and that details are surprisingly uncertain. But Bill Bryson goes on to say in his book, and he, he's a secular author, and he says, but of course it hardly really matters. 
no matter what you pay or how carefully you assemble the materials, you're not going to create a human being. You could call together all the brainiest people who are alive now or who have ever lived and endow them with the complete sum of human knowledge, and they could not, between them, make a single living cell. That is unquestionably the most astounding thing about us, that we are just a collection of inert compounds, the same stuff you would find in a pile of dirt. The only thing special about the elements that make you you is that they make you. That is the miracle of life. And today, as we conclude our prayer lab series, I'd like to draw attention to the miracle of life that is you. All the chemicals and compounds and molecules and atoms that come together and make you, and then the breath of life that has been breathed in you by our Creator God. Prayer is this connection, this miraculous connection between the living humans and the living God. And God, in his wisdom, gave us prayer so that we can participate in his divine nature with him. God is really interested in you praying. He really wants you to pray. He wants you to learn about prayer. He, he teaches his disciples how to pray. He's very interested in you praying. And he's not just interested because he wants you to become more religious. He's not just interested because he wants you to become more spiritual, because there's something special about just going through the motions. God is very interested in you praying because it is the way that he gets into your life and it is the way that you get into his life. Prayer is the way that we experience the personal presence of the creator God. He doesn't want you just to have classroom knowledge. He wants you to get in the lab, to experience the real life, the real experiments, the real dynamics of being in relationship with him. God so wants a real relationship with you. So the very first week in this series, we asked the question, who's in the lab? That was week one. Who's in the lab? We've been dealing with that, that question of, are you in the lab? Who are you bringing into the time of prayer? Are you bringing your full self, or are you just bringing a mental, a mental capacity, but not really your heart capacity? So um, in this first question, who's in the lab, we gave you the challenge of saying, let's pay attention to you. We talked about dealing with distractions. We gave the example from Henry Nouwen and how he described uh, setting time alone with God as going into a room and shutting the door. And then people come and they pound on the door and, and they distract you and you're dealing with all these distractions. And he says, you got to shut the door and just shut out all the distractions of life so that you can create that space with God. But then he goes on. And he says, and once you master shutting the door, once the door shut and you shut everything out and you cut off all those distra distractions, once you've mastered that, then you have to deal with you. <laughs> because as soon as you shut everything else out, then your own inner chaos opens up. Man, I've had that so many times where, where I go to pray and I, I get away from all the noises and all the distractions and the phone and I, I deal with all, all that stuff. And then I sit down and I take a deep breath and I get ready to focus on God. And then it's like, oh gosh, I'm a mess. All my thoughts, all my thinking, my running brain. And so he says, you have to just practice. Just keep shutting the door. Keep gently pulling yourself back into the presence of God. Gently refocus. Gently bring yourself back. Give yourself grace. Just keep on 
pulling yourself back in until you are in, in God's presence again. So we talked about a few different ways of what to do in these opening moments. And I know for some of you who've been here every week, this is a bit of a review, but I, I'm hoping that the repetition of this will, will sink in. We said you've got to pay attention to who's in the lab. There are two things that we gave you to get started, because often those opening moments will define what the whole rest of the time looks like. If you can get in the right frame of mind at the beginning, that often sets the tone. So the first thing we said was present yourself to God. Offer yourself as a living sacrifice. Just say, God, here I am. And when you leave today, you'll receive another week of lab packets. This is our final week of lab packet homework. And uh, Molly, I'm glad that the, the high school teacher among us here is doing her homework every week, so thank you for that. Uh, but, but all of this is spelled out there in a little more detail than what I'm going to go into now. But the first thing is present yourself to God. And then the second thing was do that breath prayer where you're, you're breathing out the stuff that you just need gone from you. And you're breathing in the presence of God, and you're saying, God, less of me, more of you. Less of me, more of you. And in that process, what those two things are designed to help you do is to realize how you are. I know that when my family prays at the dinner table, I'm not really focusing on having a really intense time with God. I'm kind of like, we're going to get pray and we're going to give thanks and we're going to, you know, acknowledge that God gave us what we have. I'm not pausing and thinking about how I am. But when I'm having that set-apart time with God, it has been absolutely life-changing for me to realize that if I pay attention to who I am and the me that I'm bringing into the prayer lab, I pray real prayers rather than fake prayers. I pray real prayers rather than prayers that don't mean anything. I pray real prayers rather than boring prayers or memorized prayers or prayers that aren't just connected to reality. And there's something about just recognizing, all right, God's here, but who am I? Where, am, am I in the lab? Am I fully present here? You know, if I'm dealing with some stuff, if I'm stressed about stuff, that stress should come out in my praying. If I'm coming into this time annoyed with something, that annoyance should come into my prayer time. I should be dealing, dealing with, with this in the presence of God. If, if I'm coming into my prayer time with a sense of, of peace, I should be coming into the presence of God with, with a sense of peace and just being aware of that. So this whole first step about who is in the lab is paying attention to where we are and the us that we are bringing into the lab. Imagine that you are in a dating relationship. Some of you are like, I wish I could imagine that. I'm trying to imagine that. But imagine that you're in a dating relationship, and imagine that you are exclusively focused on the other person. You're like, I'm, I'm not ever going to talk about me. I'm just going to talk about them. Now, it sounds a little noble at first, right? It sounds kind of like, yeah, it sounds noble. Like, okay, I'm just going to be other-centered. So uh, it's, it's uh, how, how are you? What's going on in your life? What are you dealing with? What are you thinking about right now? What are things going, what what's going on with you? But imagine if the relationship was completely one-sided like that, where you never were at all vulnerable about you, and, and you think, oh, well, I'm just focusing on them, I'm just giving to them. Well, you've got to share about you too. What's going on with you? What's going on in your heart? I think this is what we do with prayer. We think it's noble if we just focus on God and, you know, just the spiritual stuff but we keep our own selves removed. We protect our walls with, we don't want to be vulnerable, partly because it just takes emotional energy to do it, and we're not used to doing that in prayer. 
And so we, we just say, okay, I'm just going to focus on the spiritual things, but not the things in my own soul. So this first step has been paying attention to the you that you are bringing into the prayer lab. In the packets that you're going to receive today, there's some new components that are on the list of, of how to have a prayer time alone with God. And one of those things has a list of emotions. And I think it's helpful to be able to identify the emotion that you are bringing into the prayer lab that day. For me, those vary. Some days I come in with a sense of, I'm, I'm ready to conquer the world, and other days I go into it thinking, man, I can hardly get up and face the day today. And, and it, it's designed to help you identify exactly where are you. So you can kind of follow along on that if, if you'd like to dig into that. But what I'd like you to see is that you can have real prayers with God in lots of different ways. There are lots of different types of prayer. And yet I think most of us only pray a couple types of prayers. Maybe most of us pray prayers of help or thanksgiving. But what about prayers of lament to deal with our griefs? What about prayers of awe when we just need to spend time thanking God, being amazed by who God is? What about prayers of desperation? And so that's what I want to, I just want to give four examples briefly before we move on to the other parts of different types of prayers because I want you to see that prayer is something that can be done in lots of different ways that I think in bigger ways than what we even typically imagine. The first prayer type is this. It's the prayer when you're dealing with anxiety. When you're dealing with anxiety. It is possible to have real prayer with God when you're anxious. I think a lot of times we come, in, we come into prayer at times of anxiety, and we're like, okay, God, I'm just going to try to ignore this anxiety. And God says, no, bring me the anxiety. Bring it. Come into this prayer lab with me and bring it. Jesus gives us an example of doing this. He is in the Garden of Gethsemane. It is hours before he is going to be crucified, and Jesus is not doing well. Luke 22, verse 39 says, Jesus went out as usual, as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down, and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Church, you can be in anguish, and you can pray real prayers of anguish. Jesus sweats blood because the anxiety is so intense. Because of the extreme distress he is under. And I find it so interesting that he says, Lord, this is not my will. He says, Father, it is not my will to die on this cross. He says, if, if, if you have to have your will, then have your will. But if there's any way for me to have my will, please let me have my way. He says, Father, I don't want this cup. I don't want to deal with this. He's begging God for an out. He is desperately begging God to not have to face this awful thing. And he acknowledges that his will is not God, the Father's will. And I think sometimes we can pray those prayers. 
You can say, I, I think I know your will, Father, and I just, I don't want it. And if there's any way, if there's any way, I can have my will and not yours. This is a real prayer. A real prayer of a Jesus in the in intensest moments, one of the intensest moments of his life. It's a real prayer. Y you can pray with anxiety, and you can pray in that anxiety. Bring your anxiety into the presence of God. Another type of prayer is what I would call a, a desperate prayer. We see this manifested in the story of Queen Esther. Her story was the, all the Jewish people, there's a law that went out that all the Jews were going to be killed, and Esther's in a position where she's literally the only one who can save them. So all of the pressure is on her. She's got all the pressure. And Esther says, I am not up to this. This is way beyond my pay grade, and I don't know what to do. And she's desperate. It's a ticking time bomb down to the calendar of when the date is coming, when everyone is going to be killed. And so Esther sends up desperate prayers, and she rallies the few people she has to rally. Esther chapter 4, verse 15. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, who was helping her. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa, and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. Esther is desperate. She doesn't know what to do, and she doesn't know if what she does is even going to work, and she is desperate. She's begging, and she says, we have to just fast. We have to fast. Have you ever prayed a desperate prayer? Those are heartfelt. She says, we've got to fast on this one. Now, there are different ways of fasting. You can fast as a regular rhythm, or you can fast in a special circumstance. And we have good, good historical and biblical examples for both sorts of things. In th there's, a, there's, his, there's regular fasting that's just a part of regular disciplines. So John Wesley used to fast twice a week because he, he said he would fast once for spiritual purposes and then another day of the week to get his flesh under control so that he wouldn't give in to gluttony. And it was just twice a week. The, the, the spiritual leaders in Jesus' day, they fasted twice a week. It, it's, it was spiritual practices that have value simply for the sake of surrendering, submitting the flesh to God, being available to him. But then there's also fasting for special purposes, for desperate times, for calling out to God, saying, God, I am absolutely, utterly desperate, and I need you. I think there's something really meaningful about fasting in times like those. So you can pray desperate prayers. If you're coming into the prayer lab desperate, you can pray. The third thing is, is depression. It's possible to pray to God with depression. Now, I'd like to say a few things about this. I think this deserves special mention and actually probably deserves a lot more time than what we have to go into it today. But it is possible to pray with depression. I, I do think that if you're used to having a regular time alone with God, when depression comes, I think it can be hard to pray in your regular way. I think you would notice that it feels different in those times. And in those moments, it's easy to feel really defeated, like, I just can't pray right now, I just can't pray right now. And in these times, I would suggest to you that the opening exercises that we've talked about, I think could be particularly helpful. 
I present myself to you a living sacrifice. I'm kind of a mess right now, but this is the, this is the me I'm presenting to you right now. And that the second opening exercise of the breath prayers, the breathing out, the breathing in. The bre maybe when the breathing out, you've got a whole bunch of negative stuff that you've just got to get out. You've just got to get out. And then maybe the hopes can come in the less of me, more of you, Jesus. I'd encourage you to, to lean into those practices because they don't take long. They can take as long or as short as you like them to. But there's also a third step that we're going to talk about today. I'll talk about that at the end of the time, about becoming aware of your belovedness by God. And it is possible to find rhythms of prayer, even in times of depression, and to be okay with the fact that your prayer might just be different in that season. The prophet Elijah in the Old Testament gives a beautiful example of praying in the midst of depression. And he doesn't pray a very good prayer. He doesn't pray in God, according to God's will, and God doesn't even answer his prayer. This is, what, this is what happens with Elijah, but he does pray. 1 Kings 19, Elijah had just done these like miracles for God, and he, uh, he was coming off of this high, and he was exhausted emotionally, spiritually, physically. 1 Kings 19.3, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the desert. He's terrified, he's exhausted, then he's isolated, and then he takes a whole journeys a whole other day by himself, and I just imagine that in that season, his mind is just churning all this negativity. He came to a broom tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. I'm worthless. I'm so bad. I just want this to be over. God doesn't answer this prayer. Not with a yes. God says no, actually. But God meets Elijah in his depression. And then they have a really interesting encounter that you can read about in 1 Kings 19, where they have a dialogue. And God connects with Elijah in that moment. And my point here is that you can pray in your depression, and like Elijah, you could pray a prayer that God's like, I'm not answering that one. You can pray an unholy prayer. You can pray a prayer that is theologically wrong. Pray it. It's where you are. It's who you are. Bring it to God. Bring your whole self, your real self, into the presence of God and let God meet you there. Quit faking it and trying to get yourself into a spiritual place that's more spiritual. That, that's not real. Bring your real self into the presence of God. Give yourself grace that it's not going to be all the words. It's not going to be this fancy prayer. I'm not going to come away feeling great. I'm just coming into God's presence and this is what I am. You can pray in your depression, about your depression, and eventually, God will meet you in it in some way. And it probably, I should just say this, it probably won't be in the way that you want it to. God did not meet Elijah how he wanted him to meet him. But God is faithful, much more faithful than we are, and he is present and ready. And he will meet you where you are. The, the, the fourth type of prayer is demonstrated by King Hezekiah, an Old Testament king. 
and he shows us how to pray in absolutely overwhelming situations when you are just overwhelmed. Anybody? Overwhelmed much lately? When it's just too much. Elijah had this, or Hezekiah had this terrible situation where Sennacherib was an enemy king, and Sennacherib's enemy army approached Jerusalem, surrounded Jerusalem. They're much stronger than Jerusalem, and they call out, hey, King Hezekiah, come out. You bring, you and all your leaders, you come out, and you, um, we, we have some things to say to you, and Hezekiah's like, oh, this isn't going to be good, but Hezekiah and his leaders, they come out, and they stand there, and they listen to the words that the enemy starts shouting at them. The enemy says, why are you confident? We are so much stronger than you are. Like, we're going to smash you. You say that you worship the Lord, that he's going to help you, but he's not. And Hezekiah's leaders, they're, they're just dying of embarrassment over here. They're like, this is not good for our people to hear. Like, all the people are hearing them yelling these awful things about our God and about our king. And so the Hezekiah's leaders say to the enemy, hey, speak to us in Aramaic. Don't talk to us in Hebrew, because everybody understands you. Speak to us in Aramaic. We understand Aramaic, so we can hear what you're going to say, but we don't want the other people to hear what you're saying. And Sennacherib's like, oh no, I'm going to talk in Hebrew. You're all going to hear what I have to say. And, and then he loads in all of these insults and all of this toilet humor, like it's in the Bible, calls them terrible things, to humiliate the king in front of his people. 2 Kings 18 says, Then the commander stood and called out in Hebrew, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. This is what the king says. Do not let Hezekiah deceive you. He says, you can't trust your king. It's propaganda. (laughs) He cannot deliver you from my hand. Do not let Hezekiah persuade you to trust in the Lord when he says, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. He's yelling, don't listen to your king. Don't listen to your people. They're all wrong. And when King Hezekiah heard this, he tore his clothes. He tore his clothes, his desperation, and put on sackcloth and went into the temple of the Lord. Desperate. Utterly overwhelmed. Nothing in his human power he can do. And then uh, the enemy writes a letter. And they say, here, Hezekiah, here's a letter of all the things we're going to do to you and your people. Hezekiah, in 2 Kings 19.14, it says, Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers and read it. Then he went to the temple of the Lord. He went to the prayer lab. And it says, he spread it out before the Lord. He took this letter with all this stuff and he said, Lord, what do I do with that? Take this as a, something to do in your prayer lab. To bring your thing before God and say, God, what do I do with that? Well, He then prayed. He said, Lord, I believe you're strong. I believe you're powerful. I know it in my head. But God, Sennacherib is right. We're weak. And Sennacherib is right. We're probably going to lose this thing. God, I don't know what to do. And guess what? God moves. God saves them. God acts. 
And scripture, church, this is why you read the Bible as you pray, scripture is full of God moving in absolutely impossible situations. It's full. And so prayer is the way that we get into the life of God and that God's life gets into us. We pray in all of these ways because Prayer can be real. So get, break out of the, the typical one or two or three ways that you usually pray and pray real prayers. Deal with the actual position of how you are and pray according to that thing. So who is in the lab? Make sure that when it comes to the prayer lab, you, the real you, the honest you, the vulnerable you, is in the lab. Okay, second, second thing. The second question, number one is who is in the lab. The second question is who else is in the lab? Say that after me. Who else is in the lab? Here's what you need to know. Whenever you go to your prayer lab, whenever you go to your space and you're intentionally seeking time with God, he's already there waiting for you. He's here. Not anxious, ready, patient, got all the time in the world. When you come into the prayer lab, you're meeting with the living God. The real God, the Trinitarian Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father is in the lab. He's already there. Scripture tells us that, that he is the giver of all good gifts. James 1.17 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights. It says he knows how to give good gifts to his children. That's you, his children. He knows goodness. Matthew 7, 11. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask? You have a good God who is inclined toward you. He, when Jesus was born on earth, do you remember the message of the angels? Peace on earth, good will. Good will toward all. You have a God who, a God who is inclined to give you goodness. And this is the father who is waiting for you in the lab. The son is also in the lab. Father, son, Holy Spirit. The son is also in the lab. When you pray, you are engaging with the person of Jesus, the son. It is because of Jesus that we have direct access to God. In the Old Testament, perhaps you remember that people didn't pray in exactly the same ways that we do now because there was this formal way of offering prayer where you had to go through a priest and the priest had to go into the Holy of Holies. And so it, we were, our connection with God was mediated in that way. But Jesus gives us the right to approach the Father. For those of you who know this part of scripture, when Jesus died on the cross, something happened in the temple in Jerusalem. What was it? The curtain that separated the Holy of Holies, the presence of God, tore and it was symbolic of our ability to now approach the throne of grace with confidence. Jesus is the one who made it possible for us to have direct access to the Father. And Jesus also tells us, you don't have to go through me in order to pray. In John chapter 16, verse 26, Jesus says, I am not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and believed that I came from God. He says you don't have to ask the Father for stuff. You can ask him directly. And then he goes on to, there's a whole bunch of passages that say, ask for anything in my name. Ask in my name. Ask in the name of Jesus for, the, for what you need. Ask in the name of Jesus for God's will. 
And so we, we pray to the Father in the name of Jesus, his son. That he's giving us his name to pray. He's entrusting us with his name. And the scripture also tells us one other thing about Jesus the Son in the prayer lab. He says the Son is interceding for us. Interceding means pleading prayers, pouring out pleading prayers. This is Jesus interceding for you, calling out before the Father, interceding for who you are and for what you need and for your situations. That he, it says he lives to constantly intercede for us. Listen to these two passages of scripture that talk about the intercessory role of Jesus. Romans 8.34, Jesus Christ who died, more than that who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also, what? Interceding for us. Hebrews 7.25 says, Therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because, this is talking about Jesus, what does it say? He always lives to intercede for them. You have a Jesus who is constantly praying for you. It's pretty amazing. The Father is in the lab, the Son is in the lab, and the Holy Spirit is in the lab. The Holy Spirit is present when we pray. In Romans chapter 8, 26, we read, In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Let me pause. How many of you come into prayer all the time feeling strong? How many of you come into prayer often feeling weak? He helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. You have a Holy Spirit who is interceding with you and for you. He is your lab assistant in the prayer lab. He is helping you to pray. He is assisting you in bringing your burdens to the Father. And the scripture shows us that he is groaning with you. There have been many times in my life when I have not had the words to pray for something, but I knew that I needed God. And in those times, I think of this verse, and I sometimes quote this verse to, to the Lord, and I say, I don't know what to say, Holy Spirit, intercede for me. And sometimes my time alone with God looks like literally sitting in silence, trusting that somewhere out there, the Holy Spirit is doing his thing for me. What comfort that is. And the Holy Spirit always prays within the will of God because he is God. And he groans with our agony. The heartaches and the tragedies and the scandals and the desolations, the things that are too awful, he just groans. And he intercedes for us. Here's what I want you to see. In the prayer lab, 
You've got a, a trinity, the holy trinity of God. What do you see here in this prayer lab? You're coming into the prayer lab, but already in the prayer lab is this Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who is on your side. He is cheering for you. He is rooting for you. You have a father who says, I am full of good things. I have goodwill toward you. You have a son who says, pray in my name and ask the father for things, and I am interceding for you. And you have a Holy Spirit who is helping you to pray, who is your lab assistant, who is supporting you and interceding on your behalf. You have a God, church. You have a God who wants you to pray, who is calling you to pray, who is inviting you into deep relationship with himself, who doesn't want just fake forms of spirituality, but who wants your hearts and who wants to know who you really are and what you're really dealing with. You have a God who wants to reveal his divine will to you. You have a God who wants to invite you into participation in his mission on this earth. You have a God who is waiting to help you in prayer, a God who smiles when you come into his presence who is not disappointed that you are here, who is not disgusted or frustrated or thinking that you do not measure up. You have a God who desperately, deeply, sacrificially loves you. That's who else is in the lab. So the three questions, who's in the lab? You need to get there. Who else is in the lab? Our God. And the third question is, so what's in that lab? And I would say that what is in that lab is love. Don't come into prayer thinking, all right, I'm going to do my spiritual discipline. Don't come into prayer thinking, I'm just going to go and do what, I, what I'm supposed to do. Come into the prayer lab looking for love. Love is in the lab. The most important thing you can do in prayer, if you do nothing else, the most important thing you can do in prayer is to seek a deeper awareness of God's love for you. And that is what I'm going to invite you to do this week. Uh, it's, it's the new thing I'd like you to focus on, to ask God for grace to know more of his love for you. This was something that a, a mentor of mine gave me as an assignment. And they said, every day I want you to pray for grace to more deeply be aware of God's love for you. And I thought, well, that's boring. <laughs> Had a real good submissive attitude there. And, uh, and I prayed it for a while, and nothing happened. Didn't mean anything to me. But as a couple weeks went by, and as I consistently, every day, I presented myself to God, I did my breath prayers, and then I said, Lord, give me grace to become more aware of your love for me, something started to shift. Because over time, he gave me that grace to become more aware of his love, and it changed everything. The most important thing you can do in prayer is to seek a deeper awareness of his love. I challenge you to try it. Get in the lab. Ask God to just help you see it more. Ask God to help you be immersed in his love. This is just the beginning of prayer. It's the end of our series, but I feel like there's so much more we could do and explore with prayer. This is just the beginning, so many more layers. But of all the things that we've talked about over these last three weeks, I hope you'll go away with these three things. Bring your true self into the lab. Pay attention to the God who's waiting for you in the lab. And pay attention to the love in the lab. 
God wants you to pray. It's not for his own sake, it's for yours. At the beginning, we talked about the human body and all of the elements and chromium and magnesium and all that. That's, that's part of it. And Jesus himself took his own body and he sacrificed it for our bodies. And as you, in just a moment, you'll have an opportunity to come forward and receive these things. But this is what love looks like. This is the pouring out of love. This is the way that we gained access to God. It's the way we have connection with him. Jesus, through his sacrifice, opened up that pathway. This is an act of prayer and an act of love. So as we sing this song, come forward and receive these elements. Take them back to your seats and we'll receive them together in just a moment.